Uh, turn to your Bibles, Luke chapter 22, if you would. We'll get there in just a few minutes. Stephen Pyle wrote a book. It's called The Incomplete Book of Failures. Appropriately titled, as when they printed the book and started selling it, they realized it was missing two pages, so they had to put a quick addendum into it. It's filled with great stories. One of them is in 1976, there was a fireman strike in London, England. Made it possible for a great animal rescue. The British Army took over for the firefighters in January, and soon they were called out by an elderly lady in South London to retrieve her cat. As they arrived in impressive haste, they were able to rescue her favorite cat from some telephone wires. And the lady was so thankful, she said, won't you please come in for some tea? Well, these firefighters said, we can't say no to this wonderful lady. And after being her heroes, let's go in for a little bit of hospitality. So they went in. And they shared life and stories and everything. And soon her heroes had to take off and get back to work. And in the midst of all the waving, the smiling, the fond farewells, they ran over her cat and killed it. <laughs> it's a true story. See, in the midst of doing our best, isn't it true we can still fail? Yesterday, we had a great golf tournament with some great guys. It was really interesting, and I wouldn't want to embarrass anybody, but the team really didn't do very well because of the way we set it up, ended up winning the whole thing, got the most money in terms of gift certificates. People like Mike Quigley, Mark Hanskin, and um, let me see, who else was a part of that group? Uh, Ed Castro, who was, and who else? Oh, and Mike Machado. Yeah, Mike Machado, yeah. So this group, they didn't do real well. They kind of failed, but in the end, uh, they got it back together and they ended up winning. I love that title, too. Uh, the Incomplete Book of Failures. Why is that? Well, because it's so true that we all face issues in times. Failure is not only a fact of life, it can be an ongoing part of life to differing degrees. We see people fail all around us. We fail ourselves. We fail the people around us. And too often we fail our God. Before Easter, as I said last week, I was just reading this year again, the different accounts of Jesus leading up to the passion and to the cross. And as I was going through it, I just had some ideas for some talks that I thought would be apropos for our church. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to be going through those. And we're focusing around the whole idea of the cross and what the cross brings to us and the resurrection of Christ. Because sometimes we can focus so much on the resurrection that we forget the power of the cross and what the power of the life of Jesus through what he did on the cross brings to our life today. So I want to look at some of those things. And this morning we're going to look at failure. And I know that's really an exciting one. But uh, we're going to look at failure today, kind of the pathway to it, a few principles about it. And then next week we're going to talk about how Jesus restores us on the back end of failure. First thing I want you to know is that failure it really comes through human limitation or, or inability you just don't have the goods. In college, I took Greek. Why in the world I took Greek, I don't know. Because um, it, was, it was the hardest two-year plan to go on to prepare for ministry. But the, the, the Greek teacher really liked me, Brother Haltom. So he said, Terry, listen, I know you have to travel a lot for basketball. You'll miss class a lot. I'll help you get through. Oh, okay, Brother Haltom. So I said, I'll take it. So I took it. And uh, 
you know, because a lot of, of Greek, I says, I says, Brother Hall, I don't even understand English, and I got to learn another language. And he goes, I'll, I'll get you through. So, and a lot of it was drill and kill. I mean, you just, you got to memorize and memorize and memorize. And, but I took it. And uh, probably, I don't know, I can't remember if it was my junior or senior year, I'm sitting in class screwing around, and Brother Haltom didn't really take kindly to that. So he says, Riley, open your Greek New Testament, and I want you to translate that page. And so I opened it up and realized I couldn't translate it for anything. And, uh, and so he just kind of read me the riot act there and told me to quit messing around. The point is this. I couldn't do it. I was limited. I didn't have the skills in place at that time to translate a page of the Greek New Testament. And some of us live that way, and it leads us to failure in different arenas. Well, there's also failure due to sin. It can manifest itself in different ways as you miss God's intentions for your life. It can happen through sin, areas that you don't, that you do what you know you shouldn't do. Through disobedience, not doing the things that you know you should do. Problem with failure is it affects us personally as well as our relationship with God. Because when we fail through sin, through disobedience, what happens is, is the enemy wants to come and beat us with the works that we haven't done or did do and, re- and heap condemnation upon us. Why? So he makes us feel worthless. And I see this all the time. When that happens in so many people's lives, what's the first thing they want to do? They want to run from God. They want to run from the church. They want to run from people that can help them, encourage them, and support them. Not prop them up, not make them feel good about their sin or disobedience, but be there to walk them through it and to encourage them beyond it. Christ's spirit, it says in Romans 8.1, it says that he comes to free us. Therefore, Romans 8.1, therefore those who are in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation. See, when you come and you bring your failure to Christ, he's not going to beat you up. He's not going to condemn you. And he calls you to run to him, not from him in the midst of all of our failures. And see, it really leads us up to the cross time that we get to see this first class, number one major failure. His name is Peter. So I want to read some sections of passages, uh, some passages leading up to the cross that have to do with Peter. And then next week we're going to look at after the cross and the resurrection of how Jesus responded to Peter in the midst of his failure. But in Luke chapter 22, let's pick it up in verse um, 31. 22, 31, it says this. Simon, Simon, Jesus is talking to Peter. They're in the shadow of the cross. Verse 31 says, Simon, Simon, look out. Satan is asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when you have turned back, you'll strengthen your brothers. So Jesus is basically declaring, dude, you're going to fail. And the Lord told him, or he told the Lord, Peter, I love this, Peter. And this is the guy with the mint-flavored sandals, open mouth, insert foot. He's totally a reactor, not a responder. And that's where we oftentimes get into trouble. But he says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. 
I'm your man. Some of the other passages in the Gospels, it says, all these other losers are going to forsake you, (laughs) but I won't. And Jesus says, I tell you, Peter, the rooster is going to crow today. Well, not crow today until you have denied me three times. And if you skip ahead to verse 30, verse 39, it says this. Now, Jesus went out and he made his way as usual to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he reached the place, he told them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw away. He knelt down and he began to pray. And he began to make this great prayer. Father, if, if, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And then it says, then an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. Being in anguish, he prayed more fervently with, with his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he got up from prayer, he came to the disciples. He found them sleeping, exhausted from their grief. He says, why are you sleeping? He says, get up and pray so that you, so that you won't enter into temptation. In verse 47, while he was speaking, suddenly a mob was there. And one of the 12 named Judas was leading them. He came near Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, are you going to betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those around him saw what was going to happen, they asked, Lord, should we strike him with the sword? Then one of them, I <laughs> guess who? Peter. He struck, him with, he struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. Again, he's, he's a reactor. But Jesus responded, no more of this. And touching his ear, he healed him. If you go down to verse 54, they seized Jesus, took him away. And then um, if you go to uh, verse 54, they seized him, led him away, and they brought him into the high priests and brought him into the house. Meanwhile, Peter was following at a distance. Catch that? It says they lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and they sat down together and Peter sat down among them. Notice that whole courtyard fire scene. It's going to be important, especially next week. When a servant saw him sitting in the firelight, looked closely at him and said, Hey, this, 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 this guy was with Jesus too. But, but Peter denied it. Listen, woman, I, I don't know him. After a little while later, someone else saw him and said, Hey, you're one of them too. Man, I am not, Peter said. And about an hour later, another kept insisting. This man, he's certainly one of them, and he's a Galilean. Peter said, man, I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. And then get this, and then the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And it was there that Peter remembered the word of the Lord and how he had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. How many people do I see? Do I have opportunity to minister to that in the midst of failure, they're weeping bitterly? I want to just look at a few quick Peter principles from a man who had good intentions, had no desire to fail, uh, but he still struggled with this whole thing called failure. 
This is the Galilean, Peter. He's the man that tried to walk on water. Glug, glug, glug. He went under. In the upper room, Jesus is going around to the disciples doing what they wouldn't do, showing them what a servant was supposed to do. And he says, I'm going to wash your feet, Peter. And Peter says, no, you're not. And then, Peter, and then Jesus said, if you don't do that, brother, then you're not going to have any part of what I'm doing here. And then he goes, well, give me a power wash. I mean, you know, this guy, is just, he's so off the charts. I love him. I can kind of relate to him. In the, in the moment of Jesus, our master's emotional praying, he, was, he slept, man, like he was on Salmonax. And at Jesus' arrest, he takes this sword and he tries to deliver a mortal blow to this slave. And Jesus goes, Jack, just back off from this thing, okay? Listen, if you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. And so Jesus has to put this guy's ear back on. See, failure comes from some different reasons. Number one, it can come, uh, it's not dependent upon knowledge. Even, it it comes sometimes because we're dependent upon knowledge. See, knowledge and education are important. There's a lot of people out there, isn't there, that think if we just had more education, if people were more educated, then we would be fine. It's like it's the, the difference maker, the golden key to all of our ills. And while I am a proponent and very committed to education, and it's very important, that is not the ultimate. Jesus said it this way, know the truth, and then the truth will make you free. But even though people know the truth, isn't it true they still fail? Sure. Past week, I had to spend a few days in some uh, significant board meetings up in Eugene. And flying out of Oakland and and back, going into Eugene, I got to fly on these little small planes. And they're really small. And coming back to Oakland, I was kind of really in a hurry to get off the plane, and it was Friday evening, and just, and just get home. And, and as I'm coming out, you've got to be careful standing up underneath the carriage, I mean, the, the, the baggage thing, you know, and so you're ducking and weaving, trying to get through all the people. And, and as I'm walking out, I see the flight attendant, and she's just, you know, very nice, and she goes, have a good day, sir, and watch your head as you're going out. So I go, oh, yeah, yeah, thank you, you have a great day, too. And because we're not in the tarmac area, I mean, we're in the tarmac, but we don't have one of those big things. You've got to step down on a ladder. I'm looking where I'm walking, and boom, hit my head. Uh, it wasn't like 20 seconds earlier. She said, sir, watch your head. And so, you know, boom, I go back, and I didn't fall or anything, but I kind of stumbled. Sir, are you all right? Isn't it amazing? Somebody can tell you something, and you have the knowledge, and you'll still stumble. Well, that's what happened to me. That's what happened to Peter. The Lord said, Peter, you're going to fall. You're going to fail, dude. Oh, no, Lord, not me. See, knowledge isn't always the answer. It's important, but it won't necessarily keep you from failing. Secondly, there's, there's discouragement in life and self. Few things can cause discouragement in life and ourselves more than the free fall of failure. Isn't that true? And you begin to beat yourself up and look down on yourself. That's discouraging. Sometimes we get failure can cause great discourage, disappointment with God. Peter is disappointed because Jesus probably wasn't what he wanted or expected. Isn't it possible that some of his failure could have come as he watches Jesus head to the cross? Oh, I thought he was going to be the Messiah. Oh, I thought he was going to set up a new kingdom that I could be a part of. And this is what we learned. Expectations will almost always disappoint I see people come to Jesus today 
And we really think he's the answer to everything. Can I tell you what he's ultimately? He's the answer to your life and your eternity. But he's not necessarily the answer to your checkbook. He's not necessarily the answer to your kids turning out right. I see so many people. And I I suppose you hear me say this a lot because it's so important for us to hear. That God never promises you a rose garden. And if he does promise you a rose garden, remember it's going to have a lot of thorns. Because people, they have these expectations and then they end up when Jesus fails them according to their perspective and doesn't meet their expectations, it's really easy for them to fall away or to fail away. People will say, you know, somebody goes through a difficult time in their life and maybe they lose a spouse or something happens tragically in their life and all of a sudden they're gone and they fall away and somebody will go, oh, that's so sad that that happened and now they don't follow God. What happened? People go, oh, well, you know, boy, that just really cracked up their life. No, 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 no. See, tragedy, difficulty, tough times, they don't cause cracks in our life, loved ones. They only reveal the cracks that are already there. That's why some people can go through everything and still manage to move forward in the life of Christ and then something happens to somebody else and they fail and fall away. It's because of the cracks that are already there and simply the stresses and pressures simply reveal and bring it out. Let me show you a couple of things from Peter's life that caused him to fail the Lord and to end up denying. Number one was overconfidence. He said this, Lord, I am ready. I am your man. I will go everywhere with you. I will, go, I will die for you. I'll go to prison with you. I'll do whatever. Peter's overconfident. Lord, we're good. I'll never fail. Proverbs 16, 18 says this. Pride comes before the fall. <laughs> you ever done that? Yeah. Pride oftentimes presupposes the fall in our life. James 4 says this, that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. How many times have we said, I'll never do that. Lord, I make a promise. How many times have we said to our spouses, you can trust me, that ain't going to happen again. And then it isn't 24, 48, 72 hours later, something happens. How many times have we told the Lord, I'll never fail. I'll never let you down, God. Only to fall flat on our face in failure. See, we're so much like Peter. We don't want a failure. We don't want to fall. (laughs) But sometimes our life seems to kind of have that default mode that that's where we end up. Secondly, notice Peter, he contradicts God's word. Jesus told Peter, you're going to deny me. Now, am I saying that he still had to? No. No, he didn't have to. He could have made some adjustments. He could have heard his word and changed it. But don't argue with what God says. Do what he says or make changes to correct it. See, it's a great trick of the enemy. We've talked about this over the last couple of months, how the enemy came to Eve in Genesis chapter 3 and said, did God really say, are you really sure that God said that? And she questioned what God said, or uh, the enemy questioned what God said, tried to twist it around. Did he really mean? When it comes to your life and mine, The enemy does the same thing. He wants to lead us to believe that we've got a better way and a better idea of pulling off our life and everything that that, that, that goes on around us. That we know more than God. 
And so we argue, contradict, and try and twist what he says because we've got a better idea. Let me tell you a fish story. There's these two fish. Their name is Marvin and Stanley. They live in this beautiful aquarium. And in this beautiful aquarium is nice water. It's a ceram- there's a ceramic bridge at the bottom, plants, colored rocks. One of those cool-looking little deep-sea divers, you know, with the perpetual bubbles coming out. There's this nice little heat lamp, great little lamp. M- Marvin and Stanley have great lives. I mean, they're living La Vida Loca. It's beautiful. So one day, Stanley is just kind of floating around, and he notices Marvin just whizzing by at mock speed, back and forth. And Stanley goes, what in the world are you doing, Marvin? Marvin says, I'm sick and tired of this aquarium. I'm going to blow this joint. I'm tired of the fake bridge. I'm tired of that little guy with the little bubbles coming out. These pretty rocks, there's nothing to that. They're all fake. It's nothing. I don't like it. And then, you know, people pound on the wall, and it feels like an earthquake, and they just sit there, and they stare at us. I don't want to be a part of this anymore. Next time Mrs. Jones comes in and gives us that poor excuse for fish food, what I'm going to do is the reason I'm training is I'm going to whiz and I'm going to jump and I'm going to fly out of here. Because you know, listen, you know, Stanley, look at all those, those people out there. They come and go as they want. They've got all the freedom in the world, those humans. I'm going to crack this place. Stanley looks at him. Marvin? I think you've been flying, I mean, been, you've been floating and swimming just a little cl- cl- too close to that warm lamp. There's something going on here. He goes, no, I just want my freedom. So he keeps training. Well, next day, sure enough, Mrs. Jones, she comes in, she feeds them. The lid opens, the light props up, and all of a sudden Marvin, Marvin gets ready. And he goes whooshing across the aquarium, back and forth, gets up his momentum, and he flips out onto the ground. Well, she's walking out and doesn't notice what happens. And all of a sudden, Stanley goes over to the, to the side and he's looking at his little buddy Marvin down there. And all of a sudden, he sees him gasping for air. And he sees his, his gills begin to expand. And he's just down there on the floor in all of his freedom. See, often the enemy of our soul, loved ones, comes. And he wants us to think that freedom is going and doing whatever we want. Where we begin to move outside of the boundaries of Jesus' grace and his love and his boundaries. See, God understands our frame. He knows what's best for us. And he knows that we're made for a relationship with him. And that whatever he says The boundaries are, that's always going to be good for us. So Marvin is breathing his last, and soon Mrs. Jones walks back into the room, and she notices that there's only one fish in there, and she begins to look around. And she realizes, and she sees old Marvin over there, barely breathing, and his gills are drying out. And so what does she do? She walks over to him. She goes, you idiot fish, what are you doing down here? No, she didn't do that. But that's what we think. That that's how people are going to do it. No, she doesn't say stupid fish. She goes, oh, my little fish. And she takes him up and she quickly places him back in the aquarium. And all of a sudden, Marvin begins to flop around. He begins to breathe again and he's so happy. And he goes and he kisses the bridge. And he goes over and he kisses the little guy that's got the bubbles coming out of him. He's so happy because he's swimming around. Because now he finally understands and realizes that's what he was built for, to swim in an aquarium. 
Can I tell you something, loved ones? The greatest time that can happen in your life is when you don't fight and contradict and argue with what God says, but you begin to understand that that's part of his grace of embrace. Because I see so many people that end up jumping out of where they're supposed to be, and they begin to flop and fail, and there's experiences and expressions of death that take place in their life. Because they want to do it their own way. Listen, Hebrews 4.13 says this. The word of God is powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's piercing even to the divisions of the soul and the spirit. It is a discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart. It is so important to live accountable, friends, to this word and not do like Peter did and always contradict it. This was established to help us make good choices, think rightly, live accordingly. It says here that it will pierce through. It's like a sword. It will cut through the stuff of who we are and what we think. It says it will divide the soul and the spirit. Well, what's the soul and the spirit? What's the difference? Well, let me help you. Here's a little Greek word for you. Suke or psych. That's where we get the word soul from. It's our emotional realm. It's how you feel. It's what you think. It's your attitudes. It's how you choose to behave. So obviously it becomes a major part, an important part of who you are. That's your soul. It's the seedbed of your emotions and your thinking. Now the spirit, pneuma, it's, it, this is the link to the kingdom of God. It's when you come to Christ. It's what gets reborn, rebirthed. It comes alive. It's the part of you that can hear and relate to things on a spiritual level once you're reborn. Now, these two areas are very closely connected, but the Word of God says it is able to come in. This thing right here is able to come in and help you divide between your soul and your spirit. Why is that so important? Well, because so often our feelings can lead us to make wrong decisions. See, failure is never seldom the problem. It's what we do with it. In recent times, I met with this person, and they, they, they failed in a big way. Big way. That's not the problem. It's what they did after they failed. And this is where I think we have to understand as a church to help people through it. But they made this decision, they knew it was wrong, and they ended up happening, and instead of confessing it as sin and repenting, they took the next step. Why? Well, I just soul feel this is the way to do it. Instead of allowing God to speak to them through their spirit and say, I want to help you, honey, deal with this failure, and this is your next steps. But see, so many, we live at a soul level. What I feel, what I think, instead of allowing God's word to come in and cut through the stuff and teach us the way to go. Because see, our soul can point in one direction and our spirit point in another and we become confused amid all the noise and the feelings. 
And that's why we've got to have this moral compass, this GPS that points due God, due north. And allow this to be the GPS. But too many people's GPS is built at their soul level. And they think that because they feel it, it's right. Peter was going through a really emotional experience when he was making all of these steps toward his failure. See, we think, we think, our thinking is skewed so often because of our feelings. Someone said it this way, you sow a thought, you reap an act. You sow an act, you reap a habit. You sow a habit, you reap a character. And you sow a character, you reap a destiny. See, all of this ties in with some of the choices that we've made. Need to hear and to sow thoughts from God's word so that it can cut through some of your feelings and some of your own thinking. Peter didn't. He said, it's all about my thinking. It's all about my feelings. The next thing is he says, uh, there's personal apathy. The Lord comes to Peter and the guys, he says, why do you sleep? Raise up and pray lest you enter into temptation. See, the temptation was, are you going to deny me or not? And Peter fell. Jesus says, guys, one hour, that's all I'm asking for. I mean, just can't you hang with me for an hour? Again, they're they're on this psalmonic spirituality. You know, it's... It's crazy, amazing how we can do so many things. We can get up early to do this, that, or the other activity. We can stay up late to do this, that, or the other activity. But when it comes to to, to taking just a few minutes to allow Jesus and his Holy Spirit to calibrate our thinking, our feeling through his word, I'm so tired. I'm so tired. See, many get off track. And according to Jesus, they fall into temptation because they don't take the time to grow with them. I suppose another word besides apathy might simply be laziness. You know, well, my parents never taught me, or this, you know, I'm too busy, or whatever. No. No. Next thing is this Peter, fear of disapproval. It says, but Peter followed Jesus at a distance. Peter followed from a distance. He was following, though, wasn't he? But Peter, you know why he did, you know why he followed at a distance? Probably because he was fearful. He's thinking if they did this to Jesus, they're probably going to do it to me and the others. Why would I want to follow closely to this itinerant preacher when he's getting ready to go to the gallows, to the cross, and to die? And we have a little bit of Peter in this at times where we want to follow from a distance because why? So often we want to please the people around us and the world around us instead of truly please Jesus. Paul said it this way in Galatians 1.10. He said, for I am not trying. He said, am I, am I still trying to please man or please God? For if I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Jesus Christ. You know what he's saying? You can't please both. And so many of us, Peter, we want to walk the fence. We want to live one way Monday through Saturday and then come here on Sunday. Oh, hallelujah, Yahweh, you're the Lord. And, but maybe he's not really the Lord over all. Now hear me. This isn't a talk about going to work tomorrow and standing up and making your statement that I'm a Christ follower. Bless God, let's all pray together as I have my lunch. There's a real fine line, and I say it this way. We can be pleasing to people and still please God. 
Some people think the only way you can please God is by being a jerk to others. And I'm not saying that. We can be pleasing to people and still please God. But you can't be pleasing, but you can't, be, you can't please people oftentimes and still please God. And every one of us, friends, have to make that distinction and that determination. Because if your life is built around the approval of people and walking the fence and doing this, that, and the other during the week and then trying to come, you're going to end up failing somewhere. It's like the guy at the car dealership. A couple comes in and, you know, he does the sale. Hey, how you doing? And tries to connect. He goes, hey, I got this little, little joke to tell you. That's a little off color. <laughs> But uh, you guys look like the type that would enjoy it. So he tells them this little off-color joke, and they don't really laugh. And, and he goes, well, tell me, what do you do for work? And the guy goes, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a pastor. <laughs> and all of a sudden, the guy goes, oh, isn't that great? I'm a deacon down here at First Assembly. <laughs> you know, that's what people do. We, we want to walk the fence of both worlds. And when you do that, you're going to fail. You got to be in or out. You got to be committed. And the last one there is personal convenience. It says, Now, when they, when they kindled a fire in the courtyard, they sat down together, and Peter sat down among them. It's so easy, isn't it, to, to blend in instead of to stand up or to stand out? And again, not in an unpleasing, stupid, sign carrying way, but in a way that just lets people know, you know, that's. That racial jokes or those off-color things, that's not really that funny to me. And you don't got to say it. You just go, you don't laugh about it. And you don't got to say, I'm a Christian, that really offends me. No, you just don't laugh. Carry on. Be real. But it's just really, it's, it's more convenient, isn't it, to just kind of blend in. That's what happened to Peter. Pretty soon he blended in so much, he was one of them. Hear me, loved ones. And this is what I want people to know from more than ever. Christianity is not a convenient religion. As a matter of fact, I'm just going to tell you, Christianity is not a convenient relationship with Jesus Christ. Because if you make the decision to follow Jesus Christ, it doesn't take much of a person, but it will take all of them. And following Christ will move you out of comfort zones and convenience. And the reason is, is because you almost always have to travel the way of the cross. I noted it last week. Jesus' focus was always, I'm going to Jerusalem. One of the ways that I make decisions in my life is I always say, what's the hardest decision? Because I almost always believe the hardest decision is always the right decision. Why? Because that's what Jesus had to do. Almost every decision he made was always harder than the option he could have taken. And sometimes as Christ followers, we've got to live on the basis of that and begin to develop that in our life because that's usually what Christ calls us to do. You know what he says? Oh, he uses crosswords for your life and for mine. Die to self. Pick up your cross uh, at Easter time. No, pick up your cross daily and follow me, which simply means you've got to die to yourself. Don't like what's going on in your home because it's not going your way? And I'm not talking about negative and sinful stuff, but I'm just saying die to yourself and show them how to do it. Don't like what your, what, what your spouse is doing? Die to yourself and change yourself. Pray for them. Well, I'd rather fight with them and try and change them. It ain't going to work. 
only one that can change him is Jesus. I love what Ruth Graham said. She goes, you know, there's things I don't like about Billy. Billy Graham, can you imagine? She says, there's things I don't like about Billy Graham, but you'd find that out about anybody if you lived with him for 50 years or 20 minutes. And, um, and she says, you know, my job isn't to change Billy. My job is to love him and to pray for him and to go to the cross for him. See, that's the amazing thing about the cross and Easter for your life and mine, loved ones. God loves to turn around the things that you think and I think are absolutely hopeless. He turns crucifixions into resurrections. He takes a minus and a negative and turns it into a plus and a positive. How does he do that? How does he take those negative things in our lives and turns turns them around and use them for his good? Because he makes a cross out of them. He uses his cross and he makes a cross out of him and teaches us to die to self. This man tells the story, 1967, while he was taking a class in photography at the University of Cincinnati, he became acquainted with a young man named Charles Murray, who was a student at the time and he was training for the Summer Olympics of 1968 as a high platform diver. He'd speak to him at different times about the call of Christ upon his own personal life and how Jesus had given him a new life and how God wanted to give Murray a new life. Charles wasn't raised in a church, really didn't have any understanding about church and spirituality, so it kind of fascinated him. So he began to ask questions, and they were talking about the love of God, and it ended up moving toward forgiveness and to sin. Well, finally, one day, the day came, and the guy said to Murray, he says, I've got to ask you this question. You need Jesus. Have you ever considered the claims of Christ on your life as your Savior? And immediately, he saw the, the, the young man, his friend, his countenance fell. He saw the guilt on his face, and he gave him a strong reply and said, no. No, it's not for me. In the days that followed... The friend said that Murray was quiet toward him, actually seemed to kind of avoid him as a friend. And finally, in a week or so, he did get a phone call from Charles. And he said, Charles said to him, I want to know where to look in the New Testament for some verses about salvation. So the friend gave him references to several passages. And he said, listen, Charles, would you like to meet? I'd love to just sit down with you and walk you through it together. But he declined the offer, but took the scriptures. The friend said, you know, I could tell that he was pretty troubled and had some things going on, but I, I didn't know where to go to find him or, or to give him help. Well, because Charles was training for the Olympic Games, he had special privileges at the university so he could go just about any time he wanted to and use and to access the training facilities. So that evening, he found out later as he talked to Charles, uh, Charles went to go to, to swim practice and practice some dives. It was on a clear night. Uh, in the fall, the moon was big and bright, and the university pool was housed under a ceiling of, of glass panes so that the moon shone bright across the top wall of the pool. So Charles climbs up to the highest platform, and he was going to begin to take his first dive. And at the moment, the Spirit of God began to convict him of some of the scriptures that he had heard his friend share, and that, um, that he had actually started reading that, uh, that, that week from from his friend that had given to him. He started to think about all the sinfulness and the wrong and decisions of his life. All the occasions of his friend witnessing to him about the love of God. So he stands on this platform. He's he's backwards, getting ready to make his dive. He spreads his arm to gather his balance. He looked up on the wall and through the shadows of the moonlight and the window panes, he saw this big cross. 
He said he couldn't bear the pain of where he was any longer. He walked away, sat down on the board as his heart broke, and he just began to call out to Christ from 20 feet in the air. Suddenly the lights on the pool area went on, and there was a maintenance worker who was coming in and had been working on the pool. As he looked down, he realized that the water was draining. And he realized that if he would have dove in the, in the depth of the water that was there, he would have died. What happened? In the midst of everything that was taking place in his life, looking at the wall, he sees this, this cross. It saved him. Can I tell you something, loved ones? That's the power of the cross today. And some of us in the midst of our failure, that's where we have to come back to. Because some of us are trying so hard to get through it, and we forget that Jesus said, listen, I have taken care of every one of your failures on this cross. And the thing that will empower you to move forward is the power of the cross. And because of that, hear me, failure is never final. But hear me too, as we're going to see next week, God loves you too much to let you just sit there and wallow and stay and make excuse for your failure. He will always lead you forward. Amen? I want you to bow your heads with me for a moment. I'm not, I'm not going to ask for a response today. I'm going to challenge you. And you're going to have just a quick little discussion around your tables. None of us, hear me, I don't care who you are. And if you think you are, then you're really in trouble. But none of us are sinners emeritus. Which basically means you've kind of moved from the active duty of something. None of us are sinners emeritus. Listen, every one of us, loved ones, is one step away, one thought away from significant failure in our lives. I mean, imagine Peter walked three years with the Messiah, this great rabbi, and he still failed. But it's possible somebody here today, you're thinking, you're in failure, you feel like you fail. I just want to pray for you. Or maybe you're on this pathway, you feel, man, I've become overconfident. I'm starting, to, I'm starting to warm myself to some of the fires of this world, and you're going to end up getting burnt. You won't keep warm, you'll get burnt. And you know you're on a path that's taking you somewhere that you know you shouldn't go. But you've allowed yourself to buy into, oh, I can handle it. Oh, God understands. I want to challenge you to evaluate, evaluate your life where you are and where you're going to go before you fail. And maybe some of you are like Charles Murray. You've never made a commitment to Jesus. But today you get to stand in the shadow of the cross, bring your failure to him. And if you've never committed your life to Jesus Christ, I encourage you to do that today. And it's just a simple prayer, not only of inviting Jesus in, but declaring, I'm going to follow you. And you can do that simply by praying a, a prayer in just a moment and marking it on your, um, 
connections card on your program. People go, why do you want to know? Well, the scripture says this. If we confess our sins before God, if we believe in our heart, and then we confess with our mouth publicly to somebody else, that's where the whole process really takes place. And see, I could have you come up here, but most of you probably wouldn't. And this is a way that when you sign that card, you're confessing before Christ. And man, because our staff reads that, rejoices, celebrates, and prays over you. That's why we have you do that. Maybe some of you say, you know what, I feel like I'm in failure. I need to get back to Jesus. And maybe you need to check that box that just says I'm recommitting today. There's no shame in that. That's what I love about Creekside. We don't look down on, we don't try and rub stuff in, we try and rub it out in the love of God. So wherever you are today, I want you to just take a moment to pray. If you're on a path toward failure like Peter, then confess it. Say, Lord, give me your word to get me out. If you want to receive Christ today and follow him, say a prayer something like this. Father, I thank you for your son that came and died on the cross. I ask you today to come into my life, to renew me, to let me experience the fullness of your life, the forgiveness of sins, the new path that moves me from failure to freedom. I choose your way today, not mine. Others of you may want to pray a prayer of recommitment. Jesus, you know I've strayed. I've kind of stepped off the path. I've kind of been like Marvin. I wanted more freedom, but I feel like I'm starting to suffocate under that freedom. I'm coming back. Thank you that you always receive me. Amen. Let me close with this benediction. It's from the book of Jude. Would you take hands with somebody at your table? If you, if you don't want to, you don't have to, but uh, I want to kind of make, just seal our time. The thing I learned more than ever is I need you. You need me probably a little bit, but I need you to be able to do this thing called walking with Jesus. I can't just do it with him. I got to have people around me to encourage me, to strengthen me, to challenge me. And this is the word of the Lord for you this morning, for us, for me. Now to him, Jesus, who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty, power and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Amen. That's the God you serve. Be blessed, your love, amen.